We matter so much to Jesus that to cause even one of us to sin is with him more than a capital offense. He loves us that much. He cares about us that much that for us to be caused to sin, it's just like someone took their finger and rammed it into the pupil of his eye. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part two of The Disciple's Greatest Danger. Think about a time when someone you love was harmed by someone else. Very little vexes the human soul like true injustice. But why is that? Well, the Bible teaches that all human beings are made in God's image. And the defensive response you might have to those who wrongfully attack someone you love is in reality a faint echo of God's own response and how he responds when his children are mistreated. Today you'll see that causing other Christians to sin harms them in a way that actually harms Christ himself and how the Bible reveals ways that you can cause others to sin and how you can avoid this great danger. Let's join Tom Pennington now to find out more on The Word Unleashed. Jesus says there will be those who stand before him, and Jesus says to them, you're going you're gonna to be cast into everlasting fire because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And they say, wait a minute. When did we see you like that? And he says, to the extent that you didn't do it to these who believe in me, you didn't do it to me. And the opposite is true as well. To sin against them is to sin against Christ. But Mark's record shows that this warning was not solely for unbelievers. It was a warning intended for us as well. It was also tended, intended for believers. Because by using the word in verse 42, whoever, Jesus included everyone, including believers. Also, the context in both Matthew and Mark points to this because Jesus is sitting in a house alone with his disciples, teaching them essential lessons about discipleship. And so this warning is for us, the danger of causing others to sin. It's really like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 12, by sinning against the brethren, you sin against Christ. We could say by causing them to sin, you sin against Christ as well. Now let's look at the, the meaning of Jesus' warning. What exactly does he mean? Look at verse 42. The, the key here is causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble. There's the offense that invites the wrath of Jesus. Causes to stumble. Now this translates one Greek word. This verb comes from the noun scandalon, which you'll recognize, obviously, the English word scandal. But in Greek, this noun originally referred to the bait stick on a trap or a snare. The animal, as he was going after the bait or the food, would brush against that stick and it would trigger the trap. Some of you have had some experience with this. So it came to refer to anything against which a person strikes 
included a stumbling block, it included a trap or an obstacle. The verb form then that's used here came to mean several things. It came to refer to obstructing someone's path, to being a stumbling block. It came to mean to cause pain or to displease, like our modern use of the word offend. You offended me. But the most common usage, and the one that's here, is it means to make someone stumble and fall morally, to cause them to sin. That's the idea in this context. So Jesus says, if anyone causes a Christian to sin, it would be better for that person to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be cast into the sea. Now it's interesting here because notice those words, heavy millstone. Literally, the Greek text reads, a millstone of a donkey. That's very interesting because if you know the culture, that has significance. You see, in the first century, to mill various grains to make flour, the people of the ancient world had designed a simple stone device. On the bottom of this device was a stone shaped like an upside-down cone with its curved point sticking up. Then sitting on top of that was a large stone that fit perfectly over that cone, and in the top of the middle there was a hole for feeding the grain into, in the harvested grain. And then there was, usually there was something coming out the side of that upper stone that enabled you to turn it. And as it was turned, the grain was ground between the upper and the lower stones. Now there were two sizes of these millstones. One was relatively small so that a woman could turn it by hand. The other was so large that it took an animal to turn it. It weighed several hundred pounds. Clearly, it's this larger, heavier kind that Jesus had in mind. Jesus says, if you cause a believer to sin, it would have been better for you to have died by having one of these tied around your neck and thrown into the lake of Galilee. Jesus' warning describes a brutal, frightening form of death, but it was one with which the disciples would have been familiar. There was at least one example of this very thing happening in Israel. The Romans had done exactly this to some of the leaders under an early Jewish zealot named Judas the Galilean. They literally took that upper stone that weighed several hundred pounds And through the hole in the center, they put a rope, and then they tied it around the people's necks, went out into the Sea of Galilee, and threw them overboard. That's what Jesus is describing. Now, what does Jesus mean it would be better for them if this had happened? In what sense would it be better for a true believer to have a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the sea? Why is it better that his life ends prematurely and violently? Now, this is a theological question. We know that a believer is fully and completely forgiven in justification, that he will never stand before God in judgment for his sin. So what does Jesus mean? Well, he has to mean one of two things. He has to mean, first of all, that the person who regularly causes believers to sin may very well not be a Christian at all. This is a warning. 
This is a warning. How you treat believers is a barometer of the reality of your own faith. I mentioned Matthew 25. This is what he says there in verse 45. He will answer to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Help them. The opposite would be true as well. To the extent that you sinned against one of these, you sinned against me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see this in 1 John. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 9. John is giving tests of those who are truly Christians. How do you know if you're truly a Christian? Well, one way is by how you treat other Christians. Verse 9, the one who says he is in the light. So here's somebody who claims to be a Christian. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, I prayed a prayer. I've asked God's forgiveness. I know I'm forgiven. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause of stumbling in him. Here, We're learning that there's a dichotomy. He claims to be in the light. He claims to know God and have a relationship with God, but in reality, he doesn't, and he lives in darkness. Verse 11, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, he's not a Christian. He may say, I walk in the light, but if he hates his brother, he walks in the darkness. He's not really a Christian. Listen, do you love God's people? Do you really? Are you concerned about them? Are you concerned about what concerns them? Do you pray for them? Do you help them? Do you enjoy them? And do you keep from causing them to sin? The person who regularly causes believers to sin may very well not be a Christian at all. That's part of what Jesus is saying here. But I think he's also saying more. I think he's saying that the true Christian who causes another Christian to sin will face chastening for his sin in this life. And that discipline will be so severe, or may be so severe, that it would have been better for his life to have ended prematurely and violently. The passage that comes to my mind is, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you remember where our Lord, through the Apostle Paul, gives this sort of illustration of of the church as a temple with individual stones, and it's gradually being constructed by leaders that are appointed. He was the master builder who laid the foundation here in the New Testament with the other apostles and prophets of the New Testament times. And now, leaders in the church are building on it, and he warns the leaders who are building, that's us who are leaders in his church, he warns us to be careful how we build and to be careful not to destroy the work, the legitimate work of those who have gone before. And he says this, you are the temple of God. And he uses the plural pronoun. He's not talking here now about my body being the temple of God. That's true. He says that in another place. Here he's talking about the church collectively as the temple of God. You are the temple of God. And he says, if anyone destroy the temple of God, if anyone harms the temple of God, and remember now, he's talking to to leaders in the church. That person, God will destroy. That person, God will harm. You harm God's church, he'll harm you. He takes it very personally. 
And I think that's exactly what's being said here. The true Christian who harms another believer by causing him to sin invites the severe discipline of God into his life to the extent that it would have been better for his life to have ended violently and prematurely. That's pretty serious. So if we're going to take Jesus' warning seriously, we need to ask ourselves, how can we avoid this danger? What we really need to ask is, how do we cause others to sin? What are the ways we cause others to sin and we better avoid them? Because Jesus is serious. Jesus, if he were here tonight, would say, listen, you better not do these things because if you do them, it would be better for you for one of those several hundred pound millstones to be hung around your neck and you to be thrown in Lake Grapevine. So how do we cause others to sin? This isn't a comprehensive list, but here are some of the most common ways we cause others to sin. Number one, when we exclude others from our little spiritual cliques, we can cause them to sin in various ways. They can become discouraged. They can be tempted to be angry or resentful or even walk away from the church. We better be careful how we treat other people who are believers. We better not cut them off from the fellowship, exclude them from our little circle because they don't fit. They don't school their children the way we school our children. They don't dress the same way we dress. Same styles, I mean. I'm not talking about modesty now. I'm talking about styles, appearance. They don't fit the same demographic we fit. Whatever the criteria might be, we have to be so careful because by harboring provincial attitudes, we can cause others to sin. And I think in the context, that's the first application. Secondly, we can cause others to sin by ignoring or misusing the impact of our example. Listen, other people watch your life. I don't care who you are, someone is watching you and is tempted to follow your example. You better be very careful how you use that example because Jesus takes it seriously. One passage that came to my mind when I was thinking about this, 1 Kings 21, 25, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him by her own prodding, by her own example. And we can do this in the lives of others. We can have, by our example, an impact that causes other people to sin. Think for a moment about the example you set for others who are watching you in terms of where you go, the places you choose to go, the language you choose to speak with, what you laugh at, the movies and television you watch, the books and magazines you read, the music you listen to, etc., etc., etc. What examples are you setting that may be leading someone else to choose sin? A third way that we cause others to sin is by abusing or misusing the power of our influence on those under our authority. This can happen in all the different contexts, husbands to wives. Husbands, we can urge our spouses, and I've unfortunately seen this happen. I've heard 
Fortunately, not in the church, but I've heard spouses do this, urge their spouse to lie to workers to get a cheaper price. Urge their spouses to lie on their taxes to save some money. Encourage the spouse to watch entertainment that is sinful. Intentionally trying to provoke the anger of the spouse just to get back at them. That's a misuse of the power of our influence on those under our authority. Another would be parents to children. Again, an Old Testament passage came to mind, Second Chronicles 22. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah. He walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. He did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. We can misuse the influence that we have in our kids' lives for evil. Do you remember? Back in Mark 6 where Herodias says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And she used her daughter to that end. You see it in Ephesians 6.4 where we can provoke our children to anger. We can misuse our authority and make them angry by our unreasonableness, by our harshness, other things. Parents who tell their children to lie for them. Oh, just tell them I'm not here. And on and on it goes. That's an abuse of that authority. The same thing can happen with government to its citizens. You see it with Jeroboam. Jeroboam provoked the people of Israel to sin. Manasseh did the same. You can look at those texts and see that. Spiritual leaders can do it to those who are in their care, can abuse their influence and get them to sin. In Jeremiah 23, the leaders of Israel were setting an example and using their authority to encourage sin. A fourth way that we can cause others to sin is by teaching error and false doctrine. You see this in the cults and their leaders. If we had time, I'd take you to Revelation 2, where you see two examples in the church in in Pergamum and the church in Thyatira where those who had infiltrated the church and were teaching error and causing God's people to sin, causing them to excuse their sin. This is a warning for all of those who are in leadership in the cults, for those like Joseph Smith and Judge Rutherford who start cults and cause God's people to be trapped for a time in falsehood and error. Jesus says it would have been better for them if they had died a violent, premature death. And of course, in their case, because they're not truly regenerate, someday they will stand before a just and holy God and give an account for how they have abused people. But not only in cults, those within the true faith who by their teaching give believers permission to sin are causing them to sin. You even see it with Aaron. You remember the story? Moses is gone, he's on the mountain, and in Exodus 32, the people said, where's Moses? We don't know what's happened to him. You know, make us a God to worship. We, we, we can't see this God. Where is he? The gods of Egypt we could see. And so Aaron says, bring me your gold and I'll fashion you a golden calf. And then he declares a feast to the Lord. He abused his authority and gave them permission to sin. The same thing happens among true shepherds today, that is those who are true believers, but who teach God's people 
error. People like um, the one that came to my mind when I was thinking about this were the, the free grace people, the non-lordship people who basically give people license to sin. A fifth way is by simply persuading others to sin with us. We cause others to sin when we just try to persuade them to go along with us. Eve was the first to do this. You remember in Genesis 3, after she took from its fruit and ate, she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. This trend is unabated to today. Often with kids, it's, oh, come on. What do you think you are? With adults, there is the persuasion to be involved in sexual sin, the persuasion to be involved in financial dishonesty, creating a business that's a scam, on and on it goes, encouraging people to sin with you. Let me ask you, can you think of a time when you tried to get someone else to join you in doing what you knew was wrong? If that person was a Christian, it was far more than a sin against that person. Christ took that as a direct attack upon himself. Finally, we can cause others to sin by abusing our Christian liberty. Romans 14 talks about that at length. We must never allow our Christian liberty to cause others to sin. When we take what we say is our Christian liberty, those things that the Bible doesn't expressly forbid, and we say we're going to do them, and we don't care how it affects anybody else. We don't care if anybody else is around that might be hurt. If we cause them to sin then we are violating the text we're looking at tonight. Paul says in verse 21 of Romans 14, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles, that is, by which he is caused to sin. Paul says don't ever exercise your legitimate Christian liberty if it's going to be the stone over which your brother trips into sin. And Paul here goes way beyond the the problems in the church in Rome, he says it's good not to do anything that will cause your brother to stumble. In other words, limit your Christian liberty, whatever the issue might be. And if you refuse to do that, and if the person falls into sin, then you are sinning against Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10. If someone sees you who have knowledge... Dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Of course, here Paul is dealing with the problem that was specific to Corinth. Going and eating in an idol's temple and by doing that, causing others to sin. Verse 12, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak... You sin against Christ. If we cause the least of the little ones who believe in Jesus to sin, in any of these ways, it would be better for us to die violently and prematurely. That's what Jesus is saying. Why? Because to do it against one of his little ones is to do it against him. He takes it just that personally. Brothers and sisters, we better be very careful about causing others to sin by our example or by urging them to sin with us or any of the other ways that are listed here. This is obviously a serious warning, but as we finish our time, I want to remind you that there's also a huge encouragement here. 
specifically about our Lord's love for us. The little ones here, even the most insignificant believers, that's us. We're the little ones who believe. Even for us, we matter so much to Jesus that to cause even one of us to sin is with him more than a capital offense. He loves us that much. He cares about us that much. That for us to be caused to sin, it's just like someone took their finger and rammed it into the pupil of his eye. We are the focus of his vision. We are the pupil of his eye. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his current series, The Disciple's Greatest Danger. Tom will have part three for you on our next broadcast. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.